With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I hope you're safe and well. How To Academy is first and foremost a place to meet the world's biggest thinkers in the flesh. But while London is locked down, we've curated a feast of free webinars bringing some of the most brilliant thinkers who visited us in the past seven years direct to your devices. Whether you're looking for psychological advice to get through the stresses of isolation, insight into the economic impact of the pandemic, or art and culture to keep you stimulated, it's all at howtoacademy.com. Tweet us with your thoughts and suggestions. This week's show was recorded back in November at How to Change the World, the conference celebrating science, technology, and social innovation that we host annually in partnership with the New York Times. If you're a regular listener, you'll have heard contributors Hilary Cottam and Chetnagala Sinha in previous episodes. This week, we're hearing from neuroscientist Anil Seth. Anil is Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex. In his work, he seeks to understand the biological basis of consciousness, bringing together research across neuroscience, mathematics, AI, computer science, psychology, philosophy, and psychiatry. Matthew Stadlin caught up with him backstage to find out more. Professor Seth, what is consciousness? That's a very tricky place to start. It's um, defining consciousness as plagued philosophers and scientists for a very long time. In one sense, we all know what consciousness is. It goes away when you fall into a dreamless sleep, or I think better, when you have general anesthesia. Consciousness for me is the presence of any kind of subjective experience whatsoever. It doesn't mean it has to be complex thought or language. It could be the simple experience of a visual experience, opening your eyes and seeing something, or feeling a mood or emotion. It's the presence of any kind of experience. How closely is consciousness linked, in your view, to identity? I think they're rather separate, actually. This is a good question because one, I think it's a misconception, is that consciousness is the same thing as identity, that to be conscious is to be me or to be you, to be the particular person that you are. I think consciousness is more basic than that. It's possible to have, to be conscious of a world without necessarily being conscious of having an identity within that world. Now, we humans typically do, apart from 
cases where we can see this, uh, this, this goes away, maybe in, in, in advanced forms of dementia or perhaps also in very early childhood, that where you can think there's consciousness but the sense of identity seems to be lacking. They're two separate questions, but I think they come down to the same sorts of principles in the end. Identity, I think, is a, just one form, one elaboration of the basic mechanisms that support all our forms of conscious experience. And how you perceive the world, which is part of consciousness, does contribute to your identity, though, and to your self-identity. Yeah, definitely. It's the Identity is... It's a slippery thing. I mean, we, we have many concepts of what identity means. For some people, it's very closely associated with, with their memories and, and their, their sort of especially their memories of what they've done or their plans for what they're going to do. For other people, it may be more basic about just how they feel emotionally as an individual. I think the important thing to recognise about identity or, or sense of self, I would call it more generally, is that there are many kinds of experiences that play into that, many kinds of perceptions that play into it. At, at very low levels, part of being who you are is the experience of being the body that you are and of having the body that you are. You put your hand in front of your face and you know that's your hand and it's not somebody else's hand and it's not you know, just a, a lifeless object. We think we can take that for granted, but we, we can't take it for granted. There are these conditions. There's a condition called somatoparaphrenia where people experience their own limbs as belonging to somebody else. So even things that we think are, are just too simple, they, they need explanation because they can change. And then at higher levels of, of what it is to be a person, we have things like experiencing the world from a particular location within your head somewhere. That's the first person perspective. Then we have experiences of volition, of free will, of intending to do things. And only after that, I think, do we get to this level of personal identity where we have the experience of being a continuous individual over time with a set of memories. There are ways to, to test this feeling of embodiment, aren't there? I mean, you, you, in your talk just now on stage, you gave, gave the example of the rubber hand. The rubber hand illusion is, is wonderful. It's, it's, I think, the only neuroscience experiment that really did start as a party trick in, in the 90s, as the story goes anyway. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful demonstration of how flexible uh, and on-the-fly constructed experiences of self can be. So in this illusion... Now, just through a clever combination of stroking a fake hand and having people direct their attention at this fake hand, you can generate the experience that uh, the fake hand is kind of part of your body. I mean, you're not completely convinced by it. And I should say it also varies a lot between people. One of the things we're actually looking at in our lab is what are the individual differences? And we did this rubber hand experiment on about 400 people uh, last year with my colleague Peter Lush and find that it, it varies a lot on how hypnotizable people are. You know, if people are highly hypnotizable, they experience it stronger. That to me is not a surprise, it just means that the way they experience their body is going to be shaped much more by expectations than by the data, and the experiment will work better. But yeah, it just shows that at, at bottom that this something as basic as what our body is is continually being put together on the fly by the brain. I'm interviewing you in late November, and yesterday Sir Jonathan Miller sadly passed away aged 85. I interviewed him for my old BBC Five Minutes with series about nine years ago. And I asked him about death, and I asked him about God, and he, I suppose, would probably have described himself as an agnostic, maybe a sort of Dawkins-level atheist, 6.7 out of 7 or whatever it was. But I said to him, 
If I were able to tell you now that, that in fact there is an afterlife, what would you say? And one of the things that he said about it, I think, so long as I'm not misquoting him and misremembering, is he asked how the afterlife would know that he was him. Because our experience of life or our identity is so bound up with embodiment of us being here and there being a there, the here-ness and there-ness of things. And maybe I'm making the mistake of confusing identity with consciousness here, but I think you get the sense of what he was saying, that our identity is bound up with our, our, our bodiliness. I think he's absolutely right. And it was, yeah, we, it was very tragic to lose him uh, yesterday. Uh, our identity is, is definitely bound up with our embodiment. It also probably changes more than we think. So there's this idea when, when people, I think, have one vision of what they might like to happen or not happen after death is... is is the continuation of their identity as they experience it at the moment they're thinking about it. But we, you know, we often think about, am I really the same person I was when I was a kid or even when I was 10 years ago? Will I really be the same person in 10 years' time or in 20 years' time? There's a phenomenon in perception that we call change blindness. When something changes very, very slowly, we don't notice it. So you can take... Uh, for instance, people look at a, a, a video of a wall, and the wall is a background wall, and it changes very slowly from white to red. Now, people will not notice that change because it's so slow and because they're not expecting it. I think probably the same thing is true of our experience of identity. Our identities are changing all the time. They're always constructed. They are more continuous than what you happen to be looking at right now, but they are less stable and less continuous than I think we think they are. So that's one thing. What would, what would, be, you know, what would it even be that would be there after death? Of course, I'm also a materialist when it comes to thinking about the relationship between self-consciousness and matter. When the brain stops, there is oblivion. And I find this actually reassuring. Of course, I might be wrong. I mean, the whole thing about science is, you know, you can, you can just... It's systematic doubt. You can be provisionally correct, but you can't be 100% sure. Who knows? But I think it's very likely that uh, any kind of experience depends on the physiological integrity of the brain. When that stops, you stop. All experience stops for you. The closest, I think, many of us have come to that is general anesthesia. Well, I was going to ask you, if you are under general anesthetic, does it therefore follow that you... Anil are no longer Anil. Yeah, I think it does follow for that time. And I've had a few general anaesthetics, and the last one I actually quite enjoyed. I mean, that's, that's actually a meaningless statement because I wasn't there, but I enjoyed the sort of reflecting on it and the thinking about it before. General anaesthesia is very different from sleep. If anyone's had general anaesthesia, I mean, you'll, you'll know that any amount of time could have passed. If, it, if the anesthesia is deep enough, as it should be for surgery, you're just gone. There's, there's, the, there's the falling apart, and then there's the coming back together slowly as your elements of self and environment reassemble. In the middle, it's just gone. This is very different from sleep. When you fall asleep, and then you wake up sometime later, even if you're confused about the time, even if you've got jet lag, even if you've had a bad... You're aware that some time has passed, and you might be out by an hour or two, but you're not going to be out by 50 years. But if you're not properly you, you are, of course, to some extent you, because you are capable, 
even in your state of being under general anaesthetic, your anaesthetised state, you are capable of being the victim, for example, of a crime. If someone were to, were to, to sort of prod your toe with a knife, <laughs> then, then, then they would be attacking you and, and being a criminal towards Anil Seth. So, of course, in one sense, you are still you. But what this points to, to me, is if we're trying to understand what identity is, it re probably requires a full identity, probably requires consciousness and embodiment. So both have to kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, there's, I mean, this gets to other definitions of identity, which have almost more legal yes. uh, and moral and ethical grounds than just the sort of subjective experiential grounds that, that we start from. But you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing, yeah, if, if somebody came and chopped my leg off while I was under general anesthesia, that would be a crime against me, unless that was what I was in for. Uh, but that's because you know, I have my brain body at that time has the capacity to regain consciousness. So it's very different from, from you know, the end of life when, when, you're, when you're dead. And of course, in the history of medicine, this has been a very, very difficult issue because just the moment which you biologically call somebody dead has changed. You know, it used to be uh, when somebody stops breathing. Then it's when the heart stops beating. And now it's when the brain stops. Uh, because each of these previous instantiations, it turned out, well, no, you can keep somebody alive, actually on a ventilator or on, or on some heart machine. Uh, and now the moment of death is when your brain irreversibly stops. The worry, one of the worrying things that happened this year, uh, really a breakthrough in neurotechnology, was um, the ability to resuscitate uh, brains of pigs that had been lying around in a slaughterhouse for about four hours. These brains could be more or less resuscitated. And this has very, very important substantive ethical implications, which the scientists are well aware of and are, are dealing with. But it's now starting to push back at this notion of when do we call brain death irreversible to? The idea that you, you, you touched on a little bit earlier, that we we perhaps can change, or we know we can change as human beings, but arguably our, our, our identity can change over time. This has serious repercussions in terms of how we, or serious implications in terms of how we look at culpability and, and morality. So I'd find it quite difficult, maybe, if I really think about it, to pin down, to nail down who exactly you are, as you might find it difficult to pin down me. Am I the same person now as I was a second ago? Where, where is the seat of my identity? Where is the seat of my being? What role does consciousness play in that? If we allow ourselves to change, if, if we are no longer the same person as we were 20 years ago, that, as I say, has profound implications for responsibility and whether we can be held accountable for something that happened so long ago. Or even five seconds ago, that, if that's you take right. it to an extreme. So I think the, the, this idea that our perceptions can change more than we might assume they can, and this includes our perceptions and experiences of self, this to me is quite an optimistic, uh, or it has a lot of space for optimism too. It does mean that rehabilitation can be possible. It does mean that you know, we can change ourselves. And it doesn't mean it's easy, but a first step to enabling change is to recognise that things are not necessarily always as they seem to be. How things seem is not how they are. And by changing how things seem, you can, you can change how things are. When it comes to culpability, this is endlessly fascinating because you have here a conflict between 
a long-established legal framework that depends on a completely incoherent, inconsistent position from neuroscience and philosophy of mind, uh, which is that in, in, in the law, Roman law anyway, is based on, on two things. You have to have um, a guilty mind and perform the guilty act. Right? These are the two things and that, that are needed to be worthy of being held responsible for something legally. But what does it mean to have a guilty mind? There's a number of cases in now in legal history where previously unimpeachable characters carried out murderous acts or other extraordinarily bad acts and were then later found to have had something like a brain tumour, uh, which seems to exculpate their act to some extent. You, you, you're tempted to say, well, it wasn't them. If they hadn't have had the brain tumour, they would not have shot those people. They would not have murdered their wives' parents. I think there's something right about that. The problem is that where do you draw the line? As we understand more about the brain basis of experience and behaviour, you know, we sort of get to the point where we're, we're brain tumours all the way down. You could start to say that, well, this person was brought up in an environment which was abusive, which was challenging, which led to, in part to them having the kind of brain which caused them to experience actions in a different way. And they didn't choose to have that brain. They didn't decide to have the, the capacity to regulate their voluntary actions that they ended up having. So should we hold them responsible too also? Because you could argue that we are no more, almost by definition, although I'm sure this is challengeable as, a, as an idea, that we are no more than the product of a combination of our nature and our nurture. But what else could that be? I, indeed, and, and, and therefore that does raise questions of culpability, because if we are the product of who our parents were and how our parents brought us up and the, the way that we were brought up by others as well and the schooling and so forth, then how responsible should we actually be? That's right. I, I think it important here is that you know, law and justice is not just about punishing people for that which we can hold them responsible. About a functioning there are, society. There, there are, yeah, there's, there's other things. There's keeping the rest of society safe. There's rehabilitation. Retribution is, you know, I think most people agree, the least justifiable part of, of you know, this holding people accountable. So I think you can just use these insights about identity, its changeability, and our experience of actions as voluntary or not in a useful way to, re to reorient what we do in society when people break rules in a way which we've considered you know, that go against the grain, that go against the consensus. And I think we can do that by reorienting towards rehabilitation uh, where it's possible and reorienting towards uh, just keeping danger away from society in a more sort of objective, objective level. I think it's the wrong way to go to, f to try to figure out, is that person really responsible? Can we use science to, to answer that question? I think that leads you right up against this brick wall of assuming that there's something in addition to nature and nurture, there's some sort of guilty mind or guilty soul that ultimately we're trying to get to and figure out whether that's you know, on the, with the side of the angels or with the devil. I want to come back to consciousness and how we best measure it and think about it in a moment. But first, let's, let's talk about free will, which is in the same territory as we're, we're occupying ah, right Yeah, now. we've been talking about it already. Well, we've, been talking, we've, been, to, we've been talking about it, but not quite in this way. And I, I may be wrong in this, and you can probably correct me, but am I right in feeling that there is a, thinking that there is a sort of prevalent scientific understanding now of how we operate, that everything is, at least in one sense, predetermined? You have to ask a physicist for that. For my money, that's a very open question. 
but it's also, for my money, entirely irrelevant to this question of free will. Uh, people often worry that if the universe turns out to be fully deterministic, so that you know, what happens next was always going to happen, that that somehow means we have, we have no free will. But what's the alternative to determinism? The alternative to determinism is that there's chance. There's some kind of deeply baked-in randomness or stochasticity to the universe. But that's not free will either. We don't get free will just by having things happen randomly unless what you assume is happening is that some sort of non-material soul is parachuting in and loading the dice so that things turn out in a different way. But that's also not a kind of free will that I think we should really want because that's resurrecting again these ideas that there's there's some thing there's some non-material soul that's more than our nature more than our nurture uh, which just takes us back to this philosophy of dualism and that, that mind soul and consciousness inhabit a different supernatural realm i think free will is another kind of perception now, when we make an action that we experience as freely willed we experience this thing like that was voluntary i decided to pick up a glass on my table. Nobody forced me to do it. Uh, I wasn't hypnotized. I had this intention and it translated into an action. What's happening when we experience that as free will, I think, is that the brain is making an inference about all the causes of that action. In just the same way that the brain is making an inference when you open your eyes and we see a glass on the table, the experience of the glass is the brain's best guess about that kind of sensory input. When I experience an action as willed, what that means is the brain is saying, ah, the causes of that action were more internal to the organism than external. It's an inference. Why is it useful for the brain to do that? Well, I think it's useful for the brain to pay attention to actions that have causes that come from within the body, that are deeply rooted in our nature and nurture, rather than things that are just imposed from the outside. The reason being that the next time a similar situation comes about, Perhaps we could do differently. So this is a bit of a controversial thing to say about free will, but I think we experience free will not because our free will causes things to happen now. It's not like a, a special source that, that comes in and changes things in the here and now. I think we experience free will so we can learn from our actions and do differently in the future. Is that a, a scientifically based analysis? Or is that bordering on philosophy, what you've just said? Oh, but they're the same thing. I, mean, this is the, I think the beautiful thing about consciousness is that it's impossible to separate the two. I mean, when we talk, especially when we talk about something like free will, there are all these philosophical positions you can stake out and about consciousness too. You can stake out whether you believe that mind and matter are separate domains of existence or whether you believe everything has a material basis or the opposite, that everything is mind and matter is the real problem. Uh, Philosophy is, is there to, to kind of clarify and guide our thinking about these issues. And I like to think of the science of consciousness as a sort of uh, an extension of the philosophy of mind. And when it comes to free will, also kind of moral philosophy too. The two are very, very intimately bound together. Maybe it's no surprise that Jonathan Miller himself was able to inhabit both the worlds of the arts, but also the world of, of science as well. Well, and especially in this context, because, of course... It's not just philosophy, but it's, it's the dramatic arts, theatre, novel. If we want to understand identity, you know, it's no good just stopping and saying, like, is this your hand, yes or no? I mean, that, that's not very interesting when it comes to the inner emotional life of somebody. 
How do we really understand and explore the influences on that? I mean, that's something that has been the domain of the, of the humanities much more than it has been the domain of the sciences. But it's getting at a, a very similar question. How do we experience being me or being you? And Miller would actually be on the tube, for example, and he would very closely observe the behaviours of other passengers so that when he was then directing a, a, a big soprano, he, he would ask himself, now, how does someone really behave when they are grief-stricken? And he would import, perhaps, what he'd noticed of someone on the tube when she was distraught, maybe fiddling with her fabric, her handkerchief, or whatever, and then, and, and then ask the soprano to, to copy that, to make it more realistic. So it's almost a sort of scientific observation of how human beings observe, and then bringing that into art. I think that's fascinating. I think that's, uh, that really speaks to this idea that, that what Miller was doing there is, is paying attention to the more surface reflections of, of inner states. I mean, one of the remarkable things about why the human, when humans interact with each other is we, we're mind-reading all the time. And we, we can perceive, we often get it wrong, but we have a vivid impression of what other people are, are thinking and feeling when we observe them, even for people we don't know very well. And we kind of go straight there. But if we paid more attention to some of the surface signs, we would start to see, well, why is the brain making this inference that it's making? In just the same way that when we can use visual illusions to try and show why do we experience things to be coloured the way they are. I think there's, a, there's a, an important insight there. In fact, one of the fascinating conversations I had, not with Jonathan Miller, I never had the pleasure to meet him, but I was speaking to some, uh, some actors a couple of years ago and we, we started talking about this issue of embodiment because, of course, when you're acting, too, there's a sense in which your body is now the body of the character and it's not your own body. So I got very interested in the experience of being an actor. How does that change their experience of their, of their actual body? And I think this question, this is an, another interface between disciplines which is very rich for exploration. You asked us on stage which of us saw this particular image, the famous image, as black and purple, and which of us saw it as white and gold. The majority said black and purple. You said, interestingly, you're right if you said it's black and purple. It is black and purple. It is, yeah. How can we be sure that it's black well, and purple? Because it is. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, this is an interesting one. I mean, this is, the, this is the phenomenon known as the dress. It came out, I think, in 2015. This huge, basically crashed the internet. Uh, half, it does turn out to be about half and half. Half people think it's clearly, it's a photo of a dress, Half the people think it's blue and black. Half people think it's white and gold. Uh, it is a physical dress too. It's not just a photo. The physical e dress exists, and I assure you, if you saw it in real life, you would not be ambiguous at all. Even the people who thought it was white. Even and those gold. people, they would say they would probably say it's a different dress. But it's um, <laughs> it is blue and black. The reason that photo works is because it's a really bad photo. It's overexposed. There's very little visual context around the dress that guide our brain's interpretation of it. So whether we see it as blue and black or white and gold is therefore much more up for grabs for the brain. There's, if, you take a, if you have a white piece of paper and you look at it inside in a room with the kind of yellowish lighting that we have in rooms and then you go outside and it's sunny, the paper still looks white. The paper doesn't look like it changes colour. But the light coming into your eyes has changed completely. Uh, what's happening is the brain is basically predict, it's, it's predicting the effect of the, the context. It's discounting all this yellowish light inside, discounting all the bluish light outside, so that what we experience as a colour remains the same. And what's happening with the dress is there's very little to guide 
how the brain assumes what the ambient lighting is. So the idea is, yes, if you saw it as blue and black, you're right, but unfortunately that means you're probably more used to sitting indoors in the dark than being outside in the sun. So talk to us a little bit about hallucination and the role that hallucination plays in consciousness. So this is, the dress is actually not a bad example because in the dress we have a situation where the same sensory stimulus leads to different perceptions in different people. When colloquially we talk about hallucination, we usually mean people are seeing something or hearing something or experiencing something that other people are not experiencing and that, and that this is somehow aberrant, dysfunctional, worrying, a sign of mental illness and so on. The first thing to say is that many people experience things that other people don't and it's not a problem, it's not dysfunctional. For, for instance, a lot of people hear voices uh, when other people don't hear them. This is not a sign that you're about to develop psychosis or schizophrenia. You can have unusual perceptual experiences I mean, and they're not be. distressing. It may be, of course. It may be, but it certainly is not always. And um, I think there's, there's a lot of stigma uh, to this idea that if I experience something that other people don't, then I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of falling off the cliff to, to madness and self-destruction. I don't want to no. discourage people who are really struggling with some form no, of mental illness. No, indeed. That's the key point. The key point is, if it's distressing then go get help, then go and see somebody. Um, but just because you are experiencing something unusual doesn't mean that it's going to end up that way. That's, that's what I wanted to make clear as well. I think it's a, it's a fine balance between destigmatizing things like hallucinations, but also, of course, yes, uh, if your mental life is problematic for you or for, you, or for those around you, then it's, it's time to go and see a doctor. Uh, the larger point with respect to consciousness is that there is really, I think, a continuity between hallucination and perception. Uh, you know, we like to think that the contents of our perception are some objective readout of an external reality, you know, that the mug in the table in front of me really is red, or the table really is grey, um, and that anything that departs from that is, is a hallucination. But the way I think about perception, and it's not my own view, I mean, this is now a very common view in, in neuroscience and philosophy, it goes back to Kant and, and before, um, that every perception is an act of construction. We're making huge assumptions, aren't we? Or we're making assumptions anyway at great speed in order to make our lives functioning. That's right. I mean, our brains are continually in the process of trying to predict the causes of sensory inputs. I mean, again, take something as simple as colour. You know, it seems to us in our conscious experiences that colours exist in the world. It really seems that things have colours. Now, we've known, we don't have to go to modern neuroscience to know that this is not true. You know, there, there is just electromagnetic energy, or maybe there's quantum soup or whatever, but, but things in the world aren't actually coloured. Our brain generates you're really colour. They aren't, you're really saying your jacket is not blue? It's not blue in that blueness is not inherent to, to, to my jacket. No, the, the blueness comes about because my brain, you know, it has there's a whole bunch of elect electromagnetic signals reflecting from my jacket into my eyes. My eyes detect three wavelengths of this light and it uses combinations of these wavelengths to generate the experience. But why blue. do we tend to see the same colour as the same colour, or at least think we do? I suppose right. you can't prove it. Well, indeed, in the evidences that uh, we generally do but we probably overestimate the extent to which we do. And there are two good examples of this. Well, firstly, there are people who are colorblind. I mean, they lack a, a photoreceptor. They will have a different experience when they look at, you know, my jacket's blue, so that might be all right, but if they look at a red or a green jacket, they're obviously having a different experience because they can't distinguish these two things. 
whereas a non-colorblind person will. Then you have people who have a condition called synesthesia. This is a condition um, actually associated with creativity and other good things where people will experience, again, all sorts of things, but in particular colors when other people don't. They might look at a black letter on a screen and have an experience of redness. Now the redness is, is, is vivid, it can be perceptually rich, but most people don't see it. So I think we do all experience colors differently. And um, it's just their constructions that the brain is using to track something useful in the world. Colors help the brain keep track of how surfaces change as lighting changes. It's very useful for the brain to keep track of surfaces. We can hear the audiences pouring out of the auditorium in the background. So just very quickly, one or two more questions. How do hallucinogenic drugs fit into this and what impact do hallucinogenic drugs and our understanding of them in, in influence or has, what impact has that had on our understanding of, of consciousness? That's a terrific question. I wish we had more time to talk about that because there's been a lost generation, I think, of research into hallucinogenic drugs. Um, if you want evidence that what we experience depends in a very direct way on what happens in the brain, a good way to get that evidence is to take a psychedelic drug. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe, what you think, your experience during a psychedelic trip will be radically different from what it was before. We know a lot about the neurochemistry of psychedelics, and it's indeed a very, very open question now how the, the low-level chemical effects of things like LSD and psilocybin, how they shape and re-sculpt the activity patterns in the brain as a whole in a way that explains the kinds of unusual experiences that people have. The only other thing I wanted to say about psychedelics is that it's sometimes people take a psychedelic experience as revealing something essential about the nature of reality, that reality is composed in a very different way than we might think. I'm, I don't really think that's the right implication to draw. I think the right implication, or for me anyway, the most useful implication to draw is that it shows that our experiences are constructed, that they can change even when we're in the same objective reality. Does the subconscious exist? If I'm feeling anxious, and I might be feeling really anxious, and I might be feeling anxious because of a lot of different anxious thoughts about different areas of my life, and yet all I feel it or experience it as at a particular moment may be as a sort of underlying unpleasantness. I might, feel, I might feel it and experience as a physical thing, but I might not at that moment or even in that minute know what I'm actually feeling anxious about or remember what I'm feeling anxious about or be able to draw together all the different things at once that I'm feeling anxious about. Does that mean that that anxiety is partly existing on a subconscious level? What is the subconscious? Does it exist? Because I think there are those who don't believe that the subconscious well, really is a thing. That's true. I mean, there's, I don't think the subconscious exists in the sense of there being a little character inside you that, with beliefs and desires and emotions that are pulling the strings of your conscious brain in ways that you don't know. But it's also true that, that we're certainly not aware of everything that, that happens to us. Um, we're not aware of any of our brain activity, really. That's the medium in which consciousness is expressed, but it's, you know, we're not conscious of neurons firing. Uh, we can have unconscious perceptions. There can be sensory signals that our, our eyes and ears detect, but they, they don't alter what we consciously perceive. So that's, that's a form of the unconscious. To your point and your example, which I think is a really good one, we can wake up and we can have a, a strong feeling of anxiety, but maybe because we're not paying attention to the causes of that anxiety properly, 
we'll, we'll sort of misinterpret it, we'll, we'll misattribute that anxiety to, to something else. Meditation, I think, comes in here in a very nice way because meditation and mindfulness is really about attention training. So the idea there is if you're feeling something like anxiety, you really recognize it just as it's, it's a particular way in which you're perceiving a bodily state. And when you can perceive your bodily state as the expression and in some sense the cause of that feeling of anxiety, you know, it helps you recognize it's transient, it helps you move on from it. So there will always be things that, that remain unconscious. I can't be directly conscious, for instance, of certain things that my, my eyes respond to. I wish we had more time, but we don't. So I'll finish by asking you this. I'll return this to the beginning. Okay. Uh, having spoken for now half an hour or so, just sum up what consciousness is and how that interacts with reality. So consciousness is not some spooky stuff that comes in and kind of animates us. It's not some residue of the soul that is completely free-floating from the flesh and blood stuff that we're made of. It's an open question how consciousness fits into our picture of the universe. We don't have a good reduction or explanation of consciousness in terms of physics, but in terms of biology, we know it depends on the brain. It's any kind of experience that we have, our experience of the world around us, our experiences of the self within it. I think the best way to understand and approach consciousness is to understand the properties of conscious experiences, why we perceive the world the way we do, why we perceive the self the way we do, and when we can understand that, we understand ourselves better, we understand that other animals can be conscious, and we locate ourselves more deeply within the fabric of the rest of nature. And is there such a thing as reality? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, ask a physicist for that one. I think, yeah, we're not going to solve that problem by trying to figure out how I experience the world. There is a reality. Don't go and jump in front of a bus thinking it's just a hallucination. And where are you right now? Are you in here in your head? Are you in your chest? Is it amalgamation of all this? Where, where are you? I am a process. You know, there is no single thing that is me. There's no seed of the soul. What constitutes me right now is a series of ongoing perceptions. If you want to put that in a physical place, then that physical place is going to be in the brain because that's where the circuits that generate these perceptions are. But that doesn't mean that's where I am. I'm in the process. Professor Anil Seth, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This week's episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Anil Seth and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. The producer was me, Vas Christodoulou, and the show was edited by John Daugherty. If you enjoyed it, please, please, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next week when Hannah McInnes meets pioneering NASA astronaut Catherine Sullivan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>